You are now listening to the January 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and Divine Intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today we'll share the story of Queen Athaliah as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 11 and 2 Chronicles chapter 2 verses 10 to 23. Athaliah was a queen in Judah. She was the only queen throughout the collective history of Israel in Judah. Athaliah first appears in the Bible as the daughter of Ahab, the seventh king of Israel, and his wife Jezebel, the most wicked woman. Athaliah was then given to Jehoram in Judah in an arranged marriage. Jehoram was the fifth king of Judah, and she was his wife. When her husband Jehoram died, her son Ahaziah succeeded him as next king. When she learned that her son Ahaziah was killed, By the hands of Jehu, Athaliah went on a rampage to kill all of the king's descendants. The underlying situation was like this. All of Jehoram's sons had already been killed by the Philistines, and then Ahaziah and his cousins were killed by the hands of Jehu. Therefore, she figured if she killed the remaining descendants, most likely Jehoram's grandchildren, she would be first in line to reign over Judah. After carrying out this sinister plot, she then indeed became the seventh ruler of Judah, or the queen of Judah. The Bible does not tell us the details of what kind of queen she was. However, we can make a reasonable conjecture based on indirect comments about her in the Bible in the verses that described how the people of Judah responded to her death. For instance, the Bible tells us that Jehoram did evil in Israel because Jehoram married Athaliah, a daughter of Ahab. The implication is that Athaliah instigated the idol-worshipping among the people of Judah. As evidence, the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 27, verse 17, when she died, the people of Judah went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. Athaliah faced her death six years after being enthroned after killing the king's descendants. The Bible records in 2 Kings chapter 11 and 2 Chronicles chapter 23 how she died and how her grandson, Joash, became king after her. Earlier, we had said that Athaliah killed all of the king's descendants after his son, Ahaziah, died. In fact, that was not true. She thought she killed all of the king's descendants, but there was a survivor. When Athaliah went on a killing rampage, Jehosheba, the daughter of Jehoram and the sister of Ahaziah, saved one young prince. His name was Joash, and he was one year old at the time. Jehosheba hid him and his nurse in the bedroom. As a side note, in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 11, Jehosheba is described as Jehoshabiath, but they were the same person. Also in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, Jehoshabiath is described as the daughter of Jehoram, but in 2 Kings she is described as the daughter of Joram. Theologians explain that this is because Jehosheba was Ahaziah's sister from a different mother, the daughter of Joram, king of Israel, who was married to Jehoram, king of Judah. Jehoshabah, the daughter of Jehoram and the sister of Ahaziah, also happened to be the wife of Jehoiada, the priest at the time. Rising above such complicated connections, she showed courage to make arrangements behind the scenes so that Joash could avoid death 
and his nurse could raise him while in hiding. Since Jehoshabah was the wife of the priest, she was able to have Joash live in the bedroom inside the house of God where priests stayed, out of the reach of Athaliah's influence. The reason the priest Jehoiada and his wife Jehoshabah were able to save Joash was because they understood God's covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God says, referring to King David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised that David's descendants would not perish. Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat understood there had to be a survivor in David's lineage. That survivor was Joash. Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat trusted that God would continue David's throne through Joash, so they raised him in the house of God in concealment during Athaliah's six years of reign. In the seventh year of Athaliah's reign, Jehoiada gathered the captains of hundreds of the Karaites and captains of the guards and made a covenant with them in the house of the Lord. The Karaites were hired fighting men who were paid to guard the palace, and the guards were the palace guards who were given duties to guard the palace. Second Chronicles chapter 23, verse 1 lists the name of five captains of hundreds who made a covenant with Jehoiada. Jehoiada made these five captains take an oath who were guarding the royal chamber in the palace. Then he showed them Joash, the only living descendant of David. Because they also knew God's covenant, they supported Jehoiada and added their strength in planning to kill Athaliah and enthrone Joash to be the king. After meeting Joash in person, they went through Judah and gathered the Levites and the tribal leaders from all the cities of Judah. When they all came to Jerusalem, they made a covenant with the king in the house of God. Jehoiada told everyone in the assembly the plan to enthrone Joash. The detailed account of how this transition took place is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 5 to 8, and 2 Chronicles chapter 23, verses 3 to 7. At that time, guards were protecting three places in the palace by taking turns. Jehoiada ordered three companies out of the five who were guarding the palace on the Sabbath to guard the palace as assigned, but the other two companies to not return, but to guard the king by protecting the house of the Lord instead and he also ordered to kill whoever tried to get close to Joash and prevent him from taking on the kingship. The reason Jehoiada decided to carry out the plan on the Sabbath was because at that time the guards' assignments were being redistributed. He did so to ensure everything would proceed without alerting Athaliah and her followers prematurely. The Sabbath was the perfect day to carry out the plan because that's when the guards were rotated in and out from their guarding duties. The Sabbath came, and the Levites and the people of Judah carried out Jehoiada's order as commanded. The Bible records Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains of hundreds King David's spears and the large and small shields which had been stored in the house of God. This tells that not only the guards supported enthroning Joash to be the king, but also those who were serving in the house of the Lord. Then the assembly brought out the prince and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony, or the book of the law, and Jehoiada and his sons anointed Joash and made him king. Kings of Judah carried the copy of the testimony with them to refer to it when making decisions. Since the whole assembly accepted Joash as the king, Jehoiada gave the testimony to Joash. It was also customary for priests or prophets to anoint the king, and Jehoiada's sons carried out that duty. Everyone rejoiced and praised when they saw Joash enthroned as their king. When Athaliah heard the noise, she came out and saw the captains guarding Joash. 
trumpeters, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing horns and making noise. She tore her clothes and cried foul, yelling treason, but it was in vain. Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and ordered them to bring Athaliah out of the house of God and to put her to death, since executing her in the house of God would be improper. On Jehoiada's order, the captains of hundreds in the army put her to death at the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house. Athaliah did evil by bringing idol-worshipping to Judah, and she caused her husband, Jehoram, and her son, Ahaziah, and the people of Israel to worship the idol. Furthermore, she attempted to exterminate David's royal descendants so that she could take the throne. Athaliah was evil in God's sight. The just and faithful God judged her and intervened to keep the promise he made to David that his descendants would not seize. He did so by protecting David's descendant Joash through Jehoiada the priest and his wife Jehoshabah. That concludes today's episodes. We'll continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
fear He is a liar Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vinson of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Christ Suffered and Raised. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. I don't know if you guys realize this, but one of the reasons that God created us was actually to image Him. Now that's, I think, kind of a big idea to swallow on a Sunday morning. You were made to image the infinite God, to actually display his character. Uh, So no big deal, right? But um, as we think about that, I think that it means that we need to be thinking about the nature of what that looks like. And if we're supposed to look like God, then I think that what that means is that we're all supposed to have long noses. But my problem is I think I have a short nose. And uh, as you're looking at me, you might say he must not be talking about anything physical. But uh, what we're actually talking about this morning is uh, the kind of idea that we get from Exodus 34, 6, where amongst other things, God is being described. And one of the terms that you'll find in Exodus 34, 6 about God is that he is slow to anger. That's what a lot of translations say. The word behind that is actually uh, a God is long of nose, which is just a Hebrew expression that speaks of his patience. He is patient with us. And as I think about that, I just have continuous reminders throughout the day, including this morning on my way to church, that I am not patient as I should be. See, suffering not only makes us impatient with circumstances, but it can make us impatient with God and even ask some tough questions. Maybe you've asked some of these questions like, is God really for me? Has God really won the victory that he has told me that he has won? Because it doesn't feel like winning today. Is Jesus really able to save me? Or why does it feel like evil is winning right now? In fact, this morning we're going to be back in our Hopeful Exile series in Peter in verses 3, 18 to 22 that were just read. And as we're thinking through this text, what we're going to find is, is that there is also this sense sometimes in our suffering that we feel as though the powers of evil are actually victorious even over God and his plans and purposes for us. We begin to question those things. And what we're going to find here this morning is that Peter has an answer for that. Now, by way of refresher, the Apostle Peter, uh, he is writing to a mostly Gentile audience of churches in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. That's uh, basically where modern-day Turkey is. And as they are being spoken to, they are simultaneously facing various and sporadic persecutions, ranging uh, from everything from social pressure to that occasional political crackdown. And faith in Christ has left them feeling like aliens in their own homes. Now our section began, you'll remember, back in 1 Peter 3.8, where Peter was telling Christians that they need to bless even their enemies, so that when you are facing difficulty, even then you need to bless and not curse. You'll notice though this morning, if you look at verse 18, that it begins with the word for in verse 18, and that tells us that Peter is actually coming on the heels of and grounding what he's about to talk about in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, Peter has just told us that revering Christ in our hearts cures our fearing people. It's there that we, we begin to, to cure our fear for people. When we exalt Christ, set him apart as holy in our hearts. And that it's good to do good even when you suffer and it hurts because it's better than doing evil. But this morning what we're going to see, we're going to see that Peter actually models, I believe, how we are to set Christ apart is holy in our hearts to cure that not only fear of man, but fear of even demonic forces. So notice here that we are going to find in this an example of him reveling in the unparalleled glories of our victorious Christ, who reigns not just over human enemies, but the unseen spiritual forces that stand against us. If we know that Jesus is victorious over Satan and his demons, then we can be sure that he'll give us confidence against human enemies, right? I mean, if he can, he can overcome and he has authority over those great forces, then lesser forces that are against us, we can trust that we can have confidence. So our big idea this morning is this. It's that our victorious King Jesus gives us confidence to be patient before all evil. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 18, where we're going to see that our victorious King Jesus came to bring us home to God the Father. Our victorious King Jesus came to bring us home to God the Father. So first, 
uh, we want to look at this victorious king who came to bring us home to God the Father. Uh, you'll notice this four again, it's grounding that experience of those Christians that are suffering in Asia Minor in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the text clearly outlines what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, now, let me just clarify, when I say penal, I'm talking about penalty, all right? And when I'm talking about substitutionary, I'm talking about substitution and then atonement we're going to get to. So I know that's a mouthful, but it's an important mouthful because it is the very heartbeat of the gospel. It is the very central of what it is that we believe has come and changed and shaped us and given us eternal life. And so we need to, to know what this means and we need to understand it more and more. In fact, uh, this text uh, we'll notice also says that Jesus is our Christus victor, uh, which simply means that he is our victorious Christ. He is the one who has vanquished our enemies, who has brought us to the Father. He's done this by virtue of his sacrificial death, though. So, yes, he is the victorious Christ, one view of what Christ has done at the cross. But it is tied more significantly and centrally to how he did it, which was through this sacrificial death that we see here. See, this simply means that Jesus died a righteous, sacrificed, a sacrificial substitute on the cross for you and me to satisfy God's just, let me emphasize just penalty of his eternal wrath towards the unrighteous. That's all. All have sinned and fallen short. He did this to atone for our sins, to bring us into restored relationship with God. That's, that's basically what penal substitutionary atonement is. It's the gospel. Now, you see all of that here in verse 18. Uh, notice what he says again. So if you look in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, here's what he says. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the Spirit. It's a good verse, isn't it? So what he's doing, Peter's been pastoring these churches through how to faithfully suffer. And Christ, that spirit-anointed king from the Davidic line, suffered, he says, once for sins. Or better yet, I believe it'd be better to say, once for all for sins. See, this is really similar to, to Hebrews 10, where the author of Hebrews is unpacking Jesus. And he's been talking about how Jesus actually satisfied that whole Jewish system of priests offering sacrifices day after day and year after year for the people of God and their sins against God. If they sinned, they needed to have an equal number of sacrifices to atone for the sins which they committed against God. You can just imagine how bloody that system was. And in Hebrews 10, 12 to 14, he makes this statement. He says, something's changed. He says this, he says, but when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And when it says that Jesus offered a single sacrifice for sins and he sat down, uh, I often say that's the modern equivalent of Jesus saying, I dropped the mic. See, Jesus offered on your behalf himself to bring you to God. I mean, not appreciating the once and for all nature of this sacrifice, I believe, misses the heartbeat of Christianity and the hope of the Christian. Of the Christian. And to be honest with you, your sanity, your sanity before a holy and righteous God. And you don't have to be a Catholic to miss the depths of that flood comes from Calvary to your soul. The good that is brought to you in that. I mean, do you see the ceaseless hamster wheel existence that is? Like, I would encourage you. You need to know what Jesus has done and accomplished on the cross. He has done enough to carry us all the way home to God. He didn't bring us halfway and then say, the rest of the half is yours. And Jesus comes and meets us in our sins and sorrows, not only to take up our burdens. He does that, but also to carry us all the way home to God. So don't be a hamster wheel Christian. Rest and the pleasure that God has for you as a Christian because of what Christ accomplished on your behalf at the cross. If you get nothing else this morning, get that. See, the uniqueness of Christ's suffering means that He's going to get you home with God through your sufferings. You're going to make it in Christ. But Peter and Hebrews highlight the unique suffering here of our righteous 
Christ for an unrighteous humanity. Jesus is the ultimate innocent sufferer. The one greater than Job who came not only to suffer as a righteous one, but notice, so that, he says in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. See, Jesus came to bring an unrighteous people to the God of righteousness. The eternal Son of God willingly came to die to bring us to God. Now, that might not make as much sense without a little bit of Old Testament background, right? So the Old Testament, uh, you find that they had a temple. And in that temple, they actually had this one place called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And in this place, we find that there was a veil through which they could go, one door. And it, was, it had these cherubim with flaming swords, which basically communicated, keep out, right? And one time a year, they would have one priest that would be allowed to go in and offer a sacrifice of atonement for the people of God. And that was the only time anyone got to go into this place. What's fascinating is this stood at the heartbeat, or the very central, of Israel. So just think about this. What's in the center of, of your your city. Oh, it's a, a temple to our God, and we're not allowed in because he's there. So you center yourself around the house, the home of a God who doesn't allow you to go into his presence except once for a year to make a sacrifice. I mean, doesn't that kind of communicate to you that we don't quite have the access to God that we want? That there is some kind of significant separation between us and God with that wall-like curtain that is keeping us from his presence? See, that veil screamed separation from God. But when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 51, tells us something amazing. That veil was torn. And where was it torn from? Not bottom to top. That's what men would do. It's from top to bottom is a a significant picture of the reality that God himself tore that separating, dividing wall between himself and his people down. He did it himself. Why did he do it? Because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. See, that tearing and that renting of the veil declared that the door to God's home was open for business again. His people were invited to come back in. And Jesus' resurrection confirms this. I think that's what that last phrase in our verse means here this morning. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I wish we could spend more time on this verse, but um, just to clarify, Tom Schreiner says this, Christ was put to death with reference to his body. We could spend a lot of time here, but with reference to his body, he was put to death in his physical body. And he was made alive by the Spirit. So the Spirit brought him to life. And I would take that to speak of the resurrection, that he raised him from the dead. The Spirit did this. You might be asking yourself, okay, well, that's a lot of theology, but how does that really help suffering Christians? And maybe you're a suffering Christian that's asking that this morning. How does that help me? Well, it's easy to ask if any good can come from suffering, but I think that what this verse tries to do is really reorient them to the greatness of Jesus Christ. I think the big idea here is, let's start exalting Christ for all that He is, understanding His grand authority over all things, and and what's happened in His resurrection and later ascension. And if you do that, I believe that it's going to quiet your fears. See, Jesus' unique sacrifice and resurrection, I believe, should give us confidence that he is going to get us home. That this is not all that there is. That the best is yet to come. Now there's another thing I think that we can take away from this. And that is that no one else can bring you to God. Never want to take this for granted, but no one else can bring you to God. So if you have not put your faith in Christ, stop now, right this moment, and confess your sins before Jesus Christ. And plead the one cause that will bring you forgiveness and access with God. And that is His Son who died on the cross for you. Don't wait. You can stop right now. You don't have to listen anymore. Come to Christ. But there's a second thing that we see here, and that's this. The outcome of God's patience. The outcome of God's patience is this. Jesus proclaimed victory over evil spirits. That's the end of, of God's patience. Jesus wins. He won. Verses 19 to 20. So what we have to ask, we have to ask when we read this. I know that some of you are like, I don't like to pay so close attention to the Bible. I'd like you just to tell me what it means. But we have to ask some hard questions of the text if we want to understand it. And if you want to make sure I'm saying the right stuff. And so you have to ask when you come to verse 19, 
what does this in which that it begins with point back to? Right? Because it could completely change the way that we understand this text. I think it helps us to see when Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits and what that meant. See, I think this in which points to the spirit raising Christ from the dead. And so the resurrection is in view here. That resurrection that I think just was talked about in the last part of verse 18. I think that's going to make the rest of understanding this verse easier. So the in which is pointing back to the resurrection and the implications of that, right? And so this is what he says in verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, we'll stop there. That's enough. Sounds easy, right? I was talking to uh, somebody else this week, and they were like, man, I'm so glad you're preaching that. Um, I love what Martin Luther says here, uh, verse 19. Uh, this is like one of the harder bu- bu- you know, verses in the Bible, but he says this, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> yeah, I get that. You know, this really is one of the harder verses in the Bible, and it shouldn't cause a church split or anything, okay? So some of you might, like, disagree with me. That's okay. You can still, like, live in harmony with us. But there are, I think, at least a couple of important questions that we should answer. Now, some commentators say there are, like, six or ten. I think there are two that we just want to rest with today. And the first is this. What does it mean to proclaim? And the second is, uh, who are these, these spirits, right, that are in prison? We could unpack this more, but I think those will help us get where we need to go. So the first, this word for proclaim, it's a word that can mean different things. Um, sometimes, uh, usually in the New Testament, it means like proclaim, like preach the gospel so that people are converted, right? And then other times, it can have kind of a general sense in which it just means to declare something like declaring victory. Not necessarily to save anybody, but just like, hey, the victory's been won. So that's sort of part one. But I think if we explore part two, like who are these spirits, and it'll help us understand which one of those choices is right. So who are the spirits in prison? Well, people have taken these folks in all kinds of ways, but let me just give you a few, um, because I know that people are interested in this kind of stuff. Augustine and others, Augustine, took this to speak of the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ speaking through Noah to humans enslaved to sin during the days that Noah was building the ark. And so some say it's not actually Jesus in the flesh, but his spirit speaking through Noah uh, prior to Jesus coming and taking on flesh. Now, this is difficult because it seems that verse 19 has the resurrection in view as the context from which Jesus is speaking. And spirits here, uh, what's interesting is it never actually speaks of humans, we'll get to this, but of of evil non-human spirits in the Bible. So it just it seems unlikely that that's exactly what's going on. Now, others have taken this as the Spirit of Christ going between His death and resurrection. Okay, so like there's a little time period between death and resurrection. That those three days, he's, he's saying between that point, um, it seems that what's going on is that Jesus goes in His Spirit to proclaim the gospel to either some dead people or like to say that Jesus is one, or maybe give him a second chance at salvation, or to declare victory. That's sort of some of the options that people throw out. And I don't think that works for a few reasons. I mean, one is, again, the resurrection is already in view. So it seems to be saying this is something that happens, you know, when Jesus is raised from the dead, as opposed to like before he was raised from the dead. So that's one reason. I think also there's like a bigger kind of reason why that's kind of difficult, this idea of a second chance at salvation. It's because really isn't the point of the book of 1 Peter that we should suffer well and obediently? And wouldn't it kind of diffuse the whole book if you were to come in and say, but then you also have that second chance? Like it just wouldn't really give strength to the kind of argument that he's making that we ought to live faithful lives amidst suffering. And we could go on, um, but it's also this word for prison is never used as a place for dead humans where they are kept, but is used to describe, for instance, Satan, who is being imprisoned in Revelation 20. So the language doesn't seem to be like a prison for uh, humans, but a prison for spiritual beings. Now, the, th- the third one is uh, one that I go with, and it's the majority opinion. That's safe, right? And the one I, I hold to today is this, that Jesus' death and resurrection, he proclaimed victory over the cosmic demonic forces that stand in opposition to Christ. That very resurrection that he declared, God has won. 
Jesus Christ, the Son, is King. You cannot thwart the purposes of God. It doesn't matter how hard you try. Now, this could speak uh, specifically, these spirits, about the spirits from Genesis 6, 1 to 4. That's who a lot point to. You'll remember in uh, Noah's day, there were some uh, sons of God that were coming in and procreating, it seems, with sons of, of man, and they were having children and that kind of thing. Now, there's also... During Peter's day, resources that he would have been aware of that weren't biblical, but they give us an idea of what some Jews were thinking about. They call them like intertestamental works, like uh, the books of Enoch. And, And in those, they actually describe similar kind of events about them understanding that there were... Um, there were some angels or some demons that came and, and procreated with human people and, uh, then had children. And that's what made God angry, right? Um, now, the only thing that you have to sort of think about is what do you do with Jesus saying that we are not like angels and we don't procreate with the, you know, so you don't procreate if there's not marriage in heaven. Um, I don't know what to do with that. So there you are. So whether Jesus proclaims to spirits in general or specifically to those that were in Noah's day, um, like as an isolated group, Jesus seems to proclaim something to them as they are imprisoned. I'm not sure that Jesus actually went uh, down to hell to declare this. Like, I don't think he did. Um, but I'm happy to wrestle through that with you too. Uh, it seems more likely that it was his resurrection and later his ascension, which he's going to pick up on verse 22, that punctuates this proclamation. So back to our first question. Jesus isn't inviting demons to be saved. That's not, I think, the way that proclaims being used here. I think he's declaring victory over spiritual enemies, just like the demonic forces that tried to undo God's work during Noah's day. He's declaring his victory, not just over human enemies, but spiritual enemies as well, like in the days of the flood. So verse 20 exposes why God declares victory. Here's what he says in verse 20. Look there with me again. He says this, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. You can imagine how lonely and far from home it must have felt for Noah and his family as they were constructing this ark in the middle of the desert with a a world and even demonic forces standing in opposition to them. See, I know the light wins in the end, but it feels like the darkness is won the day, and God is reminding us that as the floodwaters of God's judgment rise, it is His patience that holds back the flood. Did you see that? He said it's His patience. It's the patience of God that held back the floodwaters as Noah awaited. And this is salvation in this flood that comes upon Noah in that generation. It is a flood that is salvation through judgment. I mean, just think about this. The same waters that saved Noah from this wicked generation that probably would have eventually taken his life brought down judgment on Noah's enemies. And don't miss this. Peter says it was God's patience that prolonged a season of suffering up to God intervening and saving him. It was God's patience. He thought it was God's absence. It was him not reacting too soon. Because his plans will always be accomplished and never thwarted. Do you think Jesus and his resurrection from the dead punctuates that at all? God always accomplishes his purposes. See, don't mistake God's patience as you suffer as his absence. Or assume that he's unable or unwilling to deliver you. He is always working things together for our ultimate good and his glory. And that means all things. All things. Bad things. Good things. Hard things. Beautiful things. Things like sickness and death, prosperity and poverty, joy and suffering. All things for our good and for His glory. Now, catch where Peter goes from here, though. You might think this is a weird turn. He jumps to baptism. Did you see that? Third, he he jumps to baptism. See, baptism declares that we believe Jesus is our victorious cosmic King. We see this in verses 21 to 22. Uh, Look there with me at what he says in verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this being Noah, and we just talked about salvation through judgment, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got a couple of questions or a couple of things we want to cover here. The first is this. What is baptism? 
Now, that word for corresponds, again, um, is actually a word in the Greek that is um, the equivalent of antitype. Now, I know that's a big word. But antitype, it's just a word that basically means, like, hey, this is the thing that a type pointed towards. So you've got a type that happens, but it's sort of getting you ready for an antitype, something that's coming later. And he's saying that what happened in Noah's day was preparing us for something greater, which is Jesus. Now, the relationship between God's salvation through judgment during Noah's flood is a type of an anticipated Christian baptism. That's what he's saying here. Now, notice he says uh, something that is probably caught your attention, that baptism now saves you. See, this verse is why some people believe in baptismal regeneration. It's that idea that the water mystically saves you in some way. I think that this misses the point here. I, don't, I think that it's clear that that's not what's happening, especially when you look at the whole Bible and what it says about baptism. But even in this text, I think it's clear that's not what he's talking about. Uh, so what does he mean by baptism now saves you? I think that Dr. Carson gets it right when he calls this a metonymy. It's a word, essentially means, I know it's a big word, but metonymy is just where you have a part that represents the whole, right? So you'll remember that back in Billy Sunday's day, he was an evangelist, and he had this problem when he was going out and preaching in fields, he would pitch his, he would pitch his tent, and if it was wet and he pitched his tent, everybody would like slip down and fall and it would get muddy and a wreck. And if, on the other hand, it was dry and people were to start walking down the aisle, it would just get super dusty and uncomfortable and that kind of thing. And so he learned to, like, start lining it with sawdust. And when he did that, it sort of fixed both problems. And so for a while, when people would talk about coming to Christ, they would say, so when did you hit the dusty trail, right? And what he meant was not that the dusty trail saved you or the sawdust saved you, but that experience sort of encompassed what it meant to put your faith in Jesus, to get baptized, to become a Christian. It was a picture of conversion. And that is essentially, I believe, the same kind of thing that's going on with baptism. See, first century Christians that Peter would have been, spo- would have been speaking to could not have imagined a Christian who was not baptized. Like Jesus was raised from the dead, and he declared with all authority that was given to him, to his disciples, that you need to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And so they said, well, I mean, that's like, I guess, where we start, right? I mean, Jesus was raised from the dead, declares all authority over heaven and earth. And we're like, okay, what do we do? And he says, you go baptize people. So that's what Christians do. And I believe that's the way that they would have understood baptism. Now, as you see this, you notice here that Peter says, this baptism is not as a removal of dirt from the body, as in like spiritual purification, like some other religions. But instead, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Now, I I love this image. The, The Lamb who was slain to bring us to God, right, through His death in verse 18, was raised from the dead. And this lamb who was slain to bring us to God emerged from the grave as the cosmic, lion-like battle lamb who roared into creation declaring his absolute victory and unrivaled authority. That's what happens when Christ dies and is raised from the dead. He says, I am not weak, though I suffered. I am actually powerful above all earthly powers and demonic forces. There is none like me. So if you're a beleaguered Christian wondering if the suffering Jesus is strong enough to get you to God, Peter says, don't forget that we serve a victorious king who already reigns right now with power, with authority. It is unrivaled. Now I take this to mean that at baptism, a believer is actually asking God to cleanse their conscience and forgive their sins based on Jesus' death and resurrection. In the same way, the same water that brought both death and life judgment and salvation in Noah's day, baptism today pictures a death to our old man and a newness of life with Christ as our king. Do you see it? It is a picture of a a death, a judgment that takes place. God's justice is done, but we also see salvation and our being raised to newness of life. Now catch this. This is why we, we baptize confessing believers. We don't baptize babies because babies, they don't make an appeal to God. They don't ask for good consciences. See, Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is how we find 
what it means to be a believer and to be converted. We also don't believe that baptism saves you, just to be clear, like the Catholic Church, the Church of Christ, Nacho Libre. We don't believe that. We believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. We don't get baptized to get saved. We get baptized because we're saved. But if we are saved, we will get baptized. And with all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says that we as Christians are to make disciples baptizing the name in the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now notice that baptize here is an appeal to a good conscience. That good conscience is the control center of what tells you what is right and wrong. It's like, it reminds me of Will Robinson from Lost in Space. Do you remember that? Have y'all seen that? It's like updated shows, so even some of the kids will know what I'm talking about. I used to watch reruns in black and white, but you'll remember he has Robot. That's the robot's name is Robot. And Robot, whenever he senses that there's any kind of danger for Will Robinson, he'll start just screaming out, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson, over and over again until he gets himself out of danger. Now, what's fascinating is that's really similar to the way that our consciences ought to work. If they're not seared through sin or hardened towards God, they ought to tell us about when we are in danger. Now, here's my concern is there is a sense in which you can sear that conscience to the point to which the robot turns off, where you no longer sense that you are in danger and you feel safety when you are not. And that's not a good place to be, spiritually or otherwise. But there's another sense here in which I believe Peter is reminding them of what ought to encourage their consciences to know that they are in a good place and right before God. Not just at salvation, but for the rest of their lives. Notice that he doesn't point them to some good decision they made or how special they are. He points them to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, if you want a good conscience before God, it shouldn't rest in anything in you, but in the Son. And let me just remind you of where he is. He lives. And oh, by the way, not only does he live, do you remember that he also wasn't just raised, but he was raised again? So that he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father? above all earthly powers, all demonic forces, there is none like him, that's the one who you need to trust your conscience with. Do you know him? Do you trust him? And if you don't trust him today, there is nothing more that you need to be safe with God than his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only way. So if Jesus lives, the cross achieved satisfying God's wrath once for all for you and me and solidified our futures. Our patience needs to reflect God's patience when we suffer. But our faith union with him means that he's carrying us all the way home to God. If we make it, it's because of who Jesus is. Now, how do we bolster that patience really quickly? Let me give you some ways. Uh, The first is that we meditate on God's word. I say that a lot because God's word is breathing life into us. It shapes and transforms us. We need it, and we need the reminder to look to God's word. We meditate on God's word and the reality that Jesus is enthroned in heaven already as our victorious king. Our victorious king is able, are you hearing me? He is able to bring us home. That we need to pray for Christ to come quickly. We need to pray for Christ to come quickly. Now this might sound funny. We're looking to be patient and yet we're eager, right? How can we be eager and impatient for the return of Christ and yet patient in this life? Well, see, I believe, even though it doesn't say it here explicitly, I believe if you really understand just how good Christ is and long to be with the Father, it will make you a more patient person in this life.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Divine Intervention. Rachel's shriek of suffering was still lingering in Leah's ear. Leah couldn't believe it. She couldn't believe her sister Rachel died. Jacob held the baby that was just born in his arms while crying laid on Rachel, who died a moment ago. His shoulders were shaking severely, and his teardrops were falling upon Rachel's face covered in sweat. Rachel's face was peaceful after the suffering disappeared, and it seemed like she was still alive. As time passed, Rachel's corpse was becoming more pale, and as Leah looked at her sister, tears began to fall endlessly from both eyes. Her life disappeared in one moment from this earth. It is such a futile and weak life. Why did they have to be envious, jealous, competitive, and hurt each other? Leah was devastated at the death of her only sister, Rachel. The past times with Rachel passed before her eyes like a revolving lantern. Rachel was beautiful. Even in Leah's eyes, Rachel had well-defined features, and she was attractive enough to captivate people with one look. Leah was always timid and looked shabby next to her sister. Because of their small age difference, Leah got along with her sister Rachel like a friend. Ever since they were young, they quarreled over trivial things, but Leah, who was considerate and had a lot of patience, loved her pretty little sister Rachel. Leah and Rachel's relationship began to grow apart after a man named Jacob came into the household. The two women's love and war with Jacob in the middle didn't rest but continued until Rachel's death. With the coercive attitude, Father Laban demanded obedience by persuading and coaxing his two daughters. A younger sister was not allowed to have a wedding before her older sister. Therefore, Leah secretly went in the room and spent the first night with Jacob instead of Rachel, whom Jacob fell in love at first sight and proposed marriage. Leah's tragic life started from then. Leah couldn't forget Jacob's facial expression after spending the first night and looking at her face in the morning. His lips were twisted with shock and the wrinkle on his forehead became narrow with anger. White with shock, Jacob didn't say a single word to Leah and left the room after kicking the door open. Jacob ran to Father Laban and the sound of protest was heard from where Leah was staying. Uncle, what is this you have done to me? I served you for seven years for Rachel, didn't I? You know this well more than anyone. Why have you deceived me? Rachel is the one I love. Rachel, it's not Leah. Leah thirsted for Jacob's love all her life, and her love Jacob looked at Rachel all his life. Leah was never as envious of Rachel like this before. How great would have been if she was thin and had deep, clear eyes and was born beautifully like Rachel. Every time she looked at the way Jacob loved Rachel, Leah was deeply heartbroken. However, Leah did not give up on Jacob's love. She thought one day he will get to know her virtues and become affectionate towards her. It's because Leah thought, compared to her sister who was sensitive and temperamental, her personality was broad-minded and reserved and she had a lot of patience. More than anything, Leah gained great strength when she began to give birth to children while Rachel couldn't. The first son, Reuben, gave Leah indescribable joy. It seemed like God was on her side. Look, it's a son. Now my husband will love me.
she began to develop confidence. However, she was mistaken. Jacob didn't give his heart to Leah. When Simeon, the second child, was born, Leah's heart began to race again. God heard my sound of suffering and gave me a son. However, despite Leah's thrill, Jacob's heart still remained with Rachel. After she gave birth to Levi, the third child, this is what she thought. Now! At last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. However, her husband only loved Rachel. Leah gradually began to lose confidence. When she realized that no matter how many sons she conceived, Jacob's heart will not turn back to her, she was filled with disappointment and distress. She was resentful towards a cold-hearted Jacob who seemed to draw a line, and she hated Rachel who won Jacob's love. There wasn't anyone who sympathized with Leah's painful heart. Leah was busy nurturing and breastfeeding her children who were all close in age while Rachel beautifully adorned herself and enjoyed going on dates with Jacob. Leah was lonely, a deeper loneliness, then when she was alone, sunk deep down in her heart. At last, she realized that God, who opened her womb and gave her a son, was the only one she could depend on. The people in the world may love the beautiful Rachel more, but she wanted to be assured that God was different. God, Lord of life, please look after this unfortunate woman, Leah. <laughs> I am a woman who is living without receiving love. Can I not receive a portion of my husband's love? Must I live all my life as a woman who can't receive love? This is so hard for me. It's agonizing to hate and be jealous of my sister. And my guiltiness is getting greater. What should I do? God, please help me. Please pour your compassion. God, if you don't look after me, I have nowhere to go now. You are the only one I depend on and have faith in. Lord God, please look after this pitiful life. Leah gave birth to her fourth son. Leah held her son in her bosom and quietly bowed her head. This time, I will praise the Lord. Lord God, my soul praises the Lord. She opened her eyes of faith, and as she looked upon God, she named her fourth son Judah. Judah means praise the Lord. Leah. I couldn't understand parents who named their child Leah. There's a lovely name like Rachel, but why would they name their daughter after the woman Leah who was ugly and not loved? However, later on I realized that such thought was without faith and a shallow point of view. If Rachel was a woman loved by a person, then Leah was a woman whom God poured his compassion on. If Rachel was a woman who was confident in her outer qualities and was satisfied with one man's love, then Leah was a woman who lost a human's love and became dependent on God through suffering and pain. No couple can dwell in perfect love from marriage on this earth where sin entered. Not only in the marriage of Jacob and Leah, but in our marriage as well, there are jealousy, fighting, and at times, deception and lies. After Genesis chapter 3, in love and marriage, there are flaws due to sin and there is hurt. Therefore, our life is in the midst of imperfection. When you wake up, instead of Rachel, whom you dreamed of, Leah is unexpectedly waiting. Or as you live, Rachel has become Leah. This is the face of our reality. It's reality that in certain areas you are appreciated like Rachel, 
but in other areas you are left behind like Leah. In a competitive society, we will surely experience Leah's reality. Also, we will experience that the human love we believed and depended on is very futile. However, when we go through Leah's experience, when we experience loneliness, defeat, and feel left behind, at that time God will come. God came to Leah who was the eternal supporting role. Look how God turned history around through Leah. Rachel wasn't buried in Bethlehem, but Leah was buried in the ancestral burial place in Machpelah along with Jacob, Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob acknowledged Leah as his wife. After Rachel left, Jacob went through hardship and difficulty, and Leah experienced it with him together. They might have become friends in faith who understood and knew each other better than anyone else. Leah and Rachel's sons became ancestors of Israel's twelve tribes. At the time when Leah was in despair of futile human love and at last submitted to God's love, she gave praise for God's grace and Judah, the son who was born, became Jesus' ancestor. Through Leah's bloodline, God became a person. God lifted Leah, who was an eternal supporting role, to become an ancestor of faith. Leah was an outsider who didn't receive attention from people, but God wrote a drama of reversal with Leah as the leading role on a stage. I praise God that His grace is also in our lives. God of Leah, I praise you. I thank you. to you, you were pink or blue, and everything I wanted, here's to you, never sleeping through, from midnight till the morning, had to crawl before you walked, before you ran, before I knew it, you were trying to free your fingers from my hand, cause you could do it on your own. You stay here a minute more I know you want to walk through the door But it's all too fast Let's make it last a little while I pointed to the sky And now you want to fly I am your biggest fan I hope you know I am But do you think you can serve? Saber wars, sleeping in on Sunday Had to crawl before you walked, before you ran Before I knew it, you were teaching me The only thing love can Hold hands through it when it's scary You've got me Let's slow down Won't you stay here a minute It's all too fast Let's make it last a little while I pointed to the sky And now you wanna fly I am your biggest fan I hope you know I am But do you think you can somehow Slow down See? 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.